Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. We're online at kpcg.fm and a live link to thetrumpet.com as well. Coming up on today's program, look at some headlines out there. Quite a bit going on, including the fact that the U.S. Uh, needs to borrow a lot of money, and they need to do it this week. How does that uh, relate to the situation with China? They're one of our biggest uh, creditors. We'll take a look at that. Also, a lot of good information about the technology out there, how it's affecting people in not such a great way. That and more this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio on 101.3 KPCG. That's uh, in the local Edmond, Oklahoma City area and online at kpcg.fm and the live link at thetrumpet.com as well. Globally, around the world, lots of listeners. We appreciate you tuning in uh, to Trumpet Radio. I'm Dwight Falk. Thanks for uh, being with us here today on uh, this Tuesday. Nice day here in Edmond, Oklahoma City. we got some rain today, which is needed, and uh, some more on the way, I think, over the next day or so. So that uh, is always helpful in the uh, springtime, especially when uh, your lawn wants to grow, and then you have to mow it. But uh, anyway, it's good. It needs to grow, and it's good that we've got the rain. Lots to take a look at uh, today, lots of interesting headlines. Also, uh, towards the end of the program, we're going to take a quick look at the uh, trumpet brief from yesterday. A very exciting find in Jerusalem, and uh, that's written about at thetrumpet.com. We've got some information about that and some audio sound bites. If uh, you haven't heard that yet, that'll be quite interesting uh, later in the program. Uh, also, we were going to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with China and the United States. Of course, the U.S. is in a, uh, a situation where we are uh, have a lot of debt, and we owe a lot of money to uh, China, but yet we have this uh, trade war that's... Uh, at least in some some ways starting to uh, uh, begin on some level, though it's certainly small at this point, but we've got some more information about that and where you can expect those things to lead. Uh, more things going on in California that are pretty interesting, so uh, a lot uh, to take a look at today and plenty more stories as well. Uh, we talked yesterday a little bit about the ongoing uh, battle over guns in the United States. The uh, young people now are taking to the streets and they're protesting. There was a protest, I think it was yesterday, in uh, Wisconsin, there were some young people that were marching and protesting and uh, going on uh, about that as well. It's, it's been happening in many parts of the country. They had a protest out there against uh, Paul Ryan in Wisconsin yesterday. And just in relation to guns, it is sort of interesting. You would think that people going to the airport would never take guns with them. Obviously, that's something that's not allowed. And yet, uh, there's been a lot of guns that have been confiscated this year. The number of firearms discovered in carry-on bags. These are the ones discovered. I would hope they discover all of them. But the number of firearms discovered in carry-on bags at TSA checkpoints in 2017 was a new record, 3,957. That's how many firearms they found in, in uh, people's bags. So they were going to take those, uh, carry them onto the plane, if you can believe that. And they're so uh, sensitive to what you bring on planes these days. And in a lot of cases, for good reason. Maybe a little oversensitive, but yet there's terrorism, so they have to be careful. 
Uh, they'll take knives, they'll take nail files, just about anything in some cases. And here people are trying to take weapons on planes. So anyway, it, with all the gun talk, I just thought, wow, that's amazing. People are still, almost 4,000 firearms were tried to take on, uh, be taken on planes. And those are the ones that they discovered. So I don't know if there's ones that they did not discover, but that was a new record for 2017. And so, and two, the numbers are really interesting because the more that uh, people protest against guns, the higher the gun sales go. And the more people seem to want to get weapons, maybe out of fear that they're going to be taken away or they won't be allowed to uh, have them at some point. But it's sort of interesting that the more there's a push against them, the more people do want them, it seems. Uh, Here's a headline out of uh, Russia. This was on the uh, news update there at the top of the hour. There was a Russian Russian shopping mall fire, a total of 64 people, some of them children, quite a few of them children, actually, perished in a fire that ravaged a busy shopping mall in an industrial city in Siberia as rescue teams struggled through piles of charred rubble to recover bodies. And so there was a, a pretty just terrible situation there. You, of course, you've probably been in shopping malls plenty of times. You know how crowded it gets, and if a fire breaks out, very difficult to get out of a place like that. Russian television showed images of thick black smoke pouring out of the Winter Cherry Shopping Center in the city of Kernerovo. The mall also houses a sauna, a bowling alley, and multiplex cinema and was packed with people on a Sunday afternoon. Lots of things that people would be interested in, very busy on a, a weekend, and a fire broke, broke out. Russia's investigative committee said the roof collapsed in uh, two theaters in the cinema during the blaze which erupted at around 4 p.m. Witnesses told Russian television that some did not hear alarms or did not take them seriously and that the fire took hold very quickly, leaving many children separated from their parents. So you can imagine the terror there. Bad situation in Russia, and uh, we don't thankfully have those things occur too often, but uh, when they do, obviously they're very deadly, so that happened out there in Russia. There's a a note here about the flu. Maybe you've been... uh, uh, afflicted with the flu this year, hopefully not, but many people have been. And a pretty serious one, too. Uh, this is from uh, WKBN. They say that the CDC warns of a second wave of flu virus, and it's happening now. So the numbers aren't quite as high, but still it is sort of a second wave. The CDC says that B viruses are being reported more frequently than the A strain. Two different strains, and uh, the A strain had been the more dominant one recently. But now this B virus is popping up more. So the CDC says this is sort of a second wave of flus. Uh, CDC spokesperson says B strain viruses tend to be more severe for younger children. So something to keep an eye out for. And uh, I didn't see the total numbers yet this year. But, of course, this flu season seems like it's been a particularly deadly one. Experts say it is possible for those who have already been sick with the flu to fall ill again with a different strain later in the season. That's no good. That's no fun. You've already been sick once. You would feel like, well, that's probably it for the year, and here comes another strain. And so uh, something to keep an eye out for. The B strain of the uh, flu is uh, a second wave, and it's happening now. So something to keep in mind. Of course, a lot of people suffer with allergies uh, this time of the year with everything blooming, but uh, in some cases it's more serious, and the flu is uh, making a comeback. Here's a headline from money.cnn.com. If you're uh, just personally a little short on money, you're waiting for payday, that's always nice to get the payday. The U.S. needs payday. They need uh, to borrow almost $300 billion this week. So the U.S., of course, economy relies a lot on borrowing money. 
The United States plans to sell about $294 billion worth of debt, according to the Treasury Department. And that's the highest for a week since the record set during the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, I guess in some in some part they think it's because of some of these tax cuts, but um, that's at least what one uh, individual wrote. Uh, Rick Ryder, he's a global chief investment officer of fixed income at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, said the amount of debt coming on the market this week is extremely large. The government is auctioning all this short and longer-term debt at an awkward time. Last week, President Trump vowed to impose wide-ranging tariffs on China, which owns more treasury bonds than any foreign country. So here we have this uh, little bit of a trade battle, at least, at this point, sort of forming on some level. And uh, we need to sell some more uh, debt. China responded by saying it would fight any trade war to the end, whatever that means exactly. Uh, When asked by Bloomberg Television whether China was considering scaling back purchases of U.S. debt, China's ambassador to the United States said, we are looking at all options. So very diplomatic. They're not exactly going to play their hand there, but they are uh, going to look at all options, they say. China holds $1.17 trillion of U.S. debt, and it trimmed those holdings by 1.4% between December and January, the latest data showed. It's interesting, too, because there's been a lot of talk about this new budget the U.S., is uh, passed recently, this huge budget, a uh, trillion dollars. And uh, so China also, they passed a new budget recently themselves. Of course, it's kind of hard to tell what those numbers are exactly if they're being honest with it, but uh, China's 2018 military budget is uh, $1.75 billion. That's the military portion of their budget. An 8.1% increase over last year, so they're ramping up their military spending. Beijing says its defense spending is transparent, but some critics believe the figure is an underestimate. So I would uh, I would assume it could be. <laughs> Certainly, I don't know why they would tell us exactly how much they're spending, but even that estimate is uh, 8% higher than last year. Uh, so China sits in this position of holding $1.17 trillion of U.S. debt, and uh, here we're having a little bit of this trade battle going back and forth. I, I wouldn't say it's a trade war at this point. The trumpet hour last week talked about how China is not totally in position yet to really get into a full-scale, full-scale trade war because <clears throat> they, they they rely on the U.S. economy as well. But uh, certainly there are some rumblings in the direction of uh, uh, more animosity between the U.S. and China. Uh, here are some comments on the U.S.-China trade war or or battle, I guess we could say. And these are from uh, Kevin Rudd. He's a former Australian prime minister. And in this clip, he's being interviewed by CCTV in China. And so you'll hear the reporter ask a few questions. And uh, here are some of uh, Kevin Rudd's comments about the potential uh, trade battle between the U.S. and China. 50 billion U.S. dollars tariffs against Chinese imports by the United States. Trump just did that. Your response? I have never supported uh, tariff wars. I've never supported trade wars. Uh, because uh, trade wars are very easy to start and they're very hard to end. And so I'm concerned about this as a series of measures. Uh, I understand China will react in one way or another. China already did. I understand China's reaction uh, will unfold. But the bottom line is this. Uh, We have to find a way of reintroducing uh, stability in the US-China economic relationship. Uh, because if that is unstable, 
then it will be bad not just for the two economies, it will be bad for the region and the world. So I think there are different ways to solve the underlying problem here, which is the American conclusion concerning the size of the bilateral trade deficit. There could be a breakup of the possibility because of one party continue to be dramatic more than planned. The real danger here is that it gets out of control. The bottom line is if this is a series of staged plays in both directions, underneath it all there's an opportunity to fix it. Mm. I would say right now that this is a 50-50 prospect. You whether think? It, yeah, whether, whether it can be fixed underneath all the external drama. But if it's not fixed, as I said before, it's very easy to start a trade war, it's very hard to stop one. And then that's when you get to escalation, which then would go to the heart of each country's bilateral trade interests. And if that happens, then it's not just the effect on these two economies, it's the global economic impact. And then apart from that, again, the impact on the existing uh, rules-based system governing international trade, which we've developed for the last 75 years. So those were uh, comments there from Kevin Rudd, uh, former Australian Prime Minister, and being interviewed uh, there in China by CCTV. And as he said, you know, the, the hope is, of course, I guess, that uh, there's just a lot of drama on the top, but underneath it all, they'll, they'll, the United States and China will get together and they'll make some sort of agreement. They are talking about a few potential agreements, I guess, and talking about tariffs back and forth. And uh, maybe it'll all settle down. So that's what a lot of people uh, are hoping for. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see exactly how this, this particular part of it plays out. But ultimately, there is going to be serious trade wars. The Trumpet wrote about that uh, just a few months back. Trade wars have begun. That was the, uh, it was a cover story, actually, and it was written by uh, Brad McDonald. So the Bible prophesied that this is how World War III would start, one of those situations where a trade war becomes a hot war over time. And he wrote, what is happening exactly, which is uh, important to look at. He said, first, America is relinquishing world leadership and is becoming isolationist and protectionist. President Donald Trump's motto is buy American, hire American. And to many Americans, this sounds terrific. But to foreign leaders, the thought of the world's most important economy reducing imports is alarming. And again, you have to keep in mind, of course, that the United States buys a lot of China's uh, uh, goods. America, it says, is reassessing established trade relationships, seemingly abandoning globalization and canceling trade deals. President Trump scrapped the Trans-Pacific Partnership, called NAFTA one of the worst deals in history, and hinted at reworking it, and threatened to impose tariffs on imports from Germany, China, and Mexico. And then secondly, he writes, Britain's departure from the European Union has compounded the sense that globalization is over and that it's now every man or nation for himself. Uh, Brexit has also created enormous uncertainty and anxiety, especially in Europe. What does Britain's departure mean for the future of the EU? Will European nations have open access to UK markets? Is the UK now a competitor in global trade? These are life and death questions for the EU. So the EU is very much looking at the situation uh, in the United States, in uh, the UK, and of course China and how they're reacting and uh, having to formulate their plan going forward. It says the upheaval in global trade and commerce has caused enormous uncertainty and anxiety. More and more it is sparking competition and hostility. 
The world, as daily news headlines now routinely declare, appears to be entering a period of trade war. And then he goes on to talk about what you can expect. It's a great write-up. You can read that at thetrumpet.com. Gets into a lot of the details, including the uh, biblical prophecies that support uh, the analysis. And uh, it talks about the fact that there is a Euro-Asian mart of nations that is going to be coming. And so when you see China and the U.S. having some rocky relationships, not that uh, it'll completely explode relationship-wise at this point. It may, it, it may not, but... Uh, ultimately, there's a Euro-Asian mart of nations that's uh, going to form, and so that's a serious that's a serious trading power right there. When you consider the the, the number of people in those nations and their economic uh, abilities and uh, their goods and services and so forth, that's a massive, massive mart of nations. And it's all written about here in this write-up at thetrumpet.com. Trade wars have begun. Uh, it's great to go back and look at that, especially because uh, it was several months ago when it came out. And now here we are down the road, and and these things are being talked about more in the headlines uh, even today. Here is a uh, interesting headline coming out of uh, California. They're uh, battling within themselves now over sanctuary cities and uh, how they're going to deal with illegal immigrants. They're they're also upset. California is, I believe, suing the um, federal government um, over the new census that is coming out. Because apparently you have to mark whether or not you're a citizen of the United States on it. <laughs> Imagine that, a, a country taking a census wanting to know how many people are actually citizens of the country. But that's offensive to some. And the reason it's a major issue, as uh, a, a write-up of the Washington Post points out, is that it's, it's a voter base issue. Um, who's going, you know, which, which side's going to have more, more voters and have the stronger voter base? And obviously, when when it's citizens of the U.S., they most cases it would tend to go more on the conservative side. Not not totally, but but some do. But when it comes to illegals, I think across the board they go to the the Democratic side. So it's a voter base issue and a voter base question. And uh, so there's a lot going on there with California. But this particular write up is from the OC Register, and it says in response to California sanctuary law, Orange County Sheriff makes public inmates release dates. So uh, California said we don't want to work with the ICE officials. We do not want to uh, help them in any way trying to deal with the illegal immigrant population. And not every area of California is on board with that, including Orange, Orange County. Uh, so Orange County, they uh, shot back in a certain way. Here, here's what they did. The Orange County Sheriff's Department, whose leadership opposes the new California sanctuary law that limits cooperation with federal immigration officials, announced Monday that it is now providing public information on when inmates are released from custody. So you can go online and you can find this information out. I I suppose if you were uh, somebody that unfortunately was in (laughs) prison or jail, you would not want people to know uh, much about those details, but they're releasing it to the public. It says, as of Monday, March 26th, that would have been yesterday, an existing who's in jail Online database includes the date and time of inmates' release, a move agency officials say will enhance communication with its law enforcement partners. The release date information applies to all inmates, not just those who are suspected of being in the country illegally, but the goal, here's the goal of why they're doing this, but the goal is to assist agents with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, They say this is in response to SB-54, limiting our ability to communicate with federal authorities and our concern 
that criminals are being released to the street when there's another avenue to safeguard the community by handing them over to ICE for potential deportation. That's what Orange County Undersheriff Don Barnes said. Orange County officials did not confer with ICE before making the change, he said. So they said, all right, if, if you're telling us that we cannot communicate with ICE officials to let them know the state of, of uh, the criminals that we have in prison and whether they're legal or illegal, then we're just going to put all that information uh, public, publicly online, and we're going to tell you when they're released. You can look it up, and they gave the website for that too. Anybody can look it up and see when people are going to be released. So ICE could go find all the information they need to know about when somebody's coming out if they wanted to try to go pick them up, I guess. So it's interesting. There's this battle back and forth, uh, not just between California and the United States, but within California itself. And, uh, it, you know, you look at the division in the United States. Well, it's now even states are starting to kind of fracture apart based upon, uh, you know, a state trying to have a law that many parts of the state don't agree with. So that's happening out there in California. It's going to be interesting to watch the responses in this back-and-forth battle and see what happens. But uh, uh, as uh, is famously written in the Bible, and uh, Abraham Lincoln quoted it as well, and they got it from Christ, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And uh, so we're seeing that happen here in uh, these different areas in the U.S. and especially in California. <clears throat> Here's an interesting uh, headline, too, about uh, online activity. A U.S. judge blocks lawsuit accusing YouTube of censoring conservatives. This is a California judge, too. Uh, So they they, uh, had this lawsuit come up, and uh, they tossed it out. Uh, Google has successfully convinced the California federal judge to toss out a lawsuit accusing its video-sharing platform, YouTube, of censoring conservatives. Uh, I'm sure everybody listening has been on YouTube probably several times, at least, if not more. Uh, Very popular video sharing site, probably the most popular one. And there's about everything you could think of on there. A lot of it's not good. There is some good, valuable things, including the Key of David program. You can find that there at uh, YouTube and some Trumpet videos, too. But uh, a lot of different uh, content there, and again, a lot of it's pretty rough. But uh, some people get a little more attention that they don't want than others. And uh, some conservatives have felt like they've been targeted. The lawsuit was filed in October by Dennis Prager, a conservative radio host and YouTuber who runs the channel PragerU. His videos include conservative viewpoints on topics like abortion, climate change, and income uh, inequality. Prager accused YouTube of being biased against conservatives by placing age restrictions and refusing to run ads on some of his videos without a compelling, significant, or legitimate reason. So that's his viewpoint on it anyway. He argued that while YouTube is privately owned, Google runs it as a public forum, which makes it subject to First Amendment scrutiny. And that's, I guess, where the argument always comes down. People say, well, it's a privately owned company. They can do whatever they want. They can put your video up. They can take it down. You know, and uh, Mr. Prager says, no, that shouldn't be the case. In his lawsuit, he referenced the 1954 Supreme Court case of Marsh versus Alabama brought about by a Jehovah's Witness distributing leaflets in a town fully owned by a corporation. The court in that case ordered the corporation to run its town in accordance with the Constitution. So Prager's point is that the corporation is like Google and YouTube is that town. 
So that's an interesting take anyway. The judge didn't agree with that. U.S. District Court Judge Lucy Coe, however, disagreed and referenced more recent Supreme Court cases that didn't arrive at the same conclusion. One of the cases she referenced was the 1972 Lloyd Corporation versus Tanner case, wherein the court ruled that a small can, uh, sorry, that a mall can ban people from distributing anti-Vietnam War flyers in its premises. Coe wrote in her decision that she is, quote, not convinced that Marsh can be extended to support plaintiff's contention that defendants should be treated as state actors subject to First Amendment scrutiny merely because they hold out and operate their private property as a forum for expression of diverse points of view. Either way, Prager can still refile an an amended ver- version of his lawsuit, so this is likely, they say, but not the last time we'll hear about the case. That's a really interesting case. And, of course, I guess they have to look at the different laws and try to determine uh, what the right thing to do there is. Of course, a lot of the judges are pretty um, pretty liberal judges. So uh, I'm no legal expert, but that is an interesting case to consider. And, uh, you know, it is it is a private company, but, again... I think it's just interesting how much content is up there, and a lot of it is is pretty bad, <laughs> so, uh, just as far as inappropriate content. But then there are some people that really seem to get um, uh, more attention than others, and uh, a lot of times it seems like they're conservatives. But uh, so that's an ongoing battle back and forth. And uh, somebody commented, "Well, then you know you should build your own video platform service." So it'll be interesting to see how that comes down in the courts. And it could affect a lot of people because there are lots of different people that put their videos up on YouTube and other places. And, uh, you know, there, some people get targeted more than others, it seems. <clears throat> so that's a ruling right now anyway. It's been uh, been thrown out. <laughs> the lawsuit's been blocked. But I'm sure they'll continue to do uh, battle that. Uh, here's a uh, an interesting note. A couple of stories here in relation to um, cell phones and their addictive uh, properties, and which, again, I think people are coming to understand more and more that cell phones, uh, smartphones, are uh, highly addictive. And people are starting to wonder, well, what is that, what is that doing to uh, society? What is it doing to people, especially young people? And uh, this first write-up here is from the Washington Post, and it talks about professional basketball players. NBA players know they're addicted to their phones. It says, good luck getting them to unplug. So here they are knowing full well this is one group they're looking at. (laughs) You could look at almost any group of a certain age here in America, and you'd find that people are addicted to phones. Not just in America. It's around the world. It's amazing. Uh, You know, there are different parts of the world where it's not as developed as the United States, and it'd be easy to think, well, they're probably not involved with smartphones and, and, and such. But I, I saw a documentary recently where uh, I think it was in Bulgaria or somewhere. It was kind of a, a small town, and uh, they were talking about how the young people can't get off of Facebook, <laughs> and and they showed the the different aspects of the town. And I mean, it, it looks, you know, very uh, uh, well not developed at all. I guess is the best way to say it. And so it was kind of odd to see this very underdeveloped town, very traditional, I guess, to that region in a lot of ways. And then the teenagers are running around on their smartphones on Facebook all the time. And the reason that they were doing a documentary about just that area is they were sh- talking about the, tr- the traditions of uh, the young people getting married and, like, what their dating practices were. And it's, they sort of do, uh, oh, it's not totally an arranged marriage, but it's something like that, and people want to keep marriages within their tribes and so forth. And so they're having a hard time having to, getting the younger people to stick with the traditions because instead of just having, 
you know, a, a certain peer group to select from within the town or a couple of towns they get together. The kids aren't that interested anymore, and now they're going on Facebook and other places to arrange uh, dates or or just to have sort of an online relationship, and the old, the parents are uh, aghast at it. They want it to be like it used to be in the old <laughs> the olden days. So even in an area like that, the reach of social media is really uh, getting a hold of people, and people are getting addicted to it. But, uh, the, of course, that's happening here in the U.S., and it's happening with these NBA players. It says uh, NBA players are a special breed. They're blessed with skill and athleticism, yet they are not unlike most of us. They, too, are obsessed with checking their phones, thumbing through Twitter, and liking photos on Instagram. All those extremely important things that uh, people tend to do on their smartphones. The NBA's social media boom, they say, began in 2009. In Milwaukee's locker room, when then-Bucks player Charlie Villanueva uh, sent a tweet during halftime of a game against the Boston Celtics. And it was just a message saying that uh, he needed to play. His coach told him he needed to play harder. But the fact that people could get an instant message from a player inside of a locker room in a sport that they were watching and interested in <clears throat> really was exciting for people. And so uh, it be, it became uh, sort of a sensation. And also then the, the teams realized that they had to keep people off their phones, especially during, um, uh, you know, timeouts or, <clears throat> you know, the halftime in the locker room because they're trying to keep their strategies quiet, obviously. They don't want the other team to know about it. And if their players are tweeting everything the coach is saying, then obviously their uh, message is going to get out there. And uh, the coach at the time was Scott Skiles. He chastised uh, the player for creating the perception that he was not focused. The coach didn't want players on the phone when he's trying to have this meeting with them. And before the start of the following season back in 2010, the league introduced a rule banning cell phone usage during games. And as they go on to point out, uh, players haven't exactly followed that. They still get on their phones quite a bit, but they're they're supposed to be careful with it. Uh, It says players now operate within these rules while otherwise tweeting and sharing with abandon. Golden State Warriors star Kevin Durant was caught using a secret account over the summer to defend his honor against haters. <laughs> if you if you follow that sports world, you might have remembered that. He got caught having another account where he was pretending to not be himself, but he was answering back to critics. And then after being traded to New Orleans Pelicans, uh, this other player, uh, he sent a, sort of a nasty message back to his other team. So there's a lot of this back and forth banter going on on social media and uh they say for the nba's millennials this is just a way of life because they have been wired to a smartphone since childhood so when you look at younger people now that are in their early 20s or teens they've been wired to smartphones since childhood so if you're like me if you're a little bit older than that i remember life pre-smartphone as i'm sure many of you do and then uh, I've had one, you know, for probably the last, uh, oh, I don't know, 15 years or something like that. But a lot of these younger people, they don't really remember a pre-smartphone time. And so they've had uh, these smartphones since childhood. It says, before an early season game in Washington, four of the six Phoenix Suns players in the visitor's locker room were checking their social media feeds less than 70 minutes before tip-off. It was just really interesting because you think about, and you see this, if, say, if you go to a professional sporting contest, and you look around in the, the audience, most people are on their phones, even even as the game action's going on. 
And what I always find interesting about that is, you know, here, if you're at a professional sporting contest or any sporting contest, it's very entertaining. There's lots of things happening, including the sport, and more than just even the sport. They have all the, the entertainment in the games and so forth. And yet people are still staring at the little, you know, phone that's in their hand and checking things and looking at things and, and just oblivious to the, the excitement that's around them. And so I was wondering, well, why did they come? You know, what did they come to the game for? But, but even the players are doing this. You know, you can think about how if, if you were about to go into a professional sporting contest as a participant, which would be obviously a lifelong goal for these players, how excited you would be. And, and just you'd be so focused on doing that. And then here it is, and, you know, a little over an hour before tip-off, and they're all just on their phones looking at pictures or, you know, sending tweets or checking their Twitter accounts, whatever they're into these days. And, uh, you know, that's that's where their focus is, even though they're about to go into a high-level sporting competition that they're getting paid a lot of money for and their performance is essential that it's good if they want to stay in the league, and they're still just very much uh, – focused on their phones it's amazing and uh one player said that he tried to stay out of it he tried to get rid of his phone but he said like you know when you walk in after a game every single person is on their phone just looking at instagram they're looking at twitter everybody's doing it and it uh, becomes a, a lifestyle really in a lot of ways one other player younger guy says i hate it it's a generational thing i would say for sure it's something that i really don't like the stereotype about my generation. He's a younger guy in his early 20s. He says, I feel like we're too depend- <clears throat> dependent on the cell phones and the social media to hype our egos and make us feel good when at the end of the day, that's not where it comes from. He says, it's just a crutch, honestly. I call it the SMD, the social media disease. And everybody's caught it. And they say, he may have a point. Uh, one of the... Uh, the guy that works as an, an agent for a lot of professional athletes, uh, and he specializes in sports psychology. He, he uh, says that that uh, behavior obviously can be very distracting. Before several of his clients left for the Pyeongchang uh, Olympics, he recommended they shut off their phones and just uh, leave them alone <laughs> while they're there preparing to compete and competing. He says, just like almost every other person on the planet these days, and and that's not really an exaggeration either, he says these athletes are addicted. They're probably more addicted to their phone and their social media because of egos, because of audiences. It's psychologically more addictive because of the size of the audience, the adulation that they receive, and also, realistically, they get hooked on the trolls too the trolls being people that would say something negative about their performance. So even these uh, athletes, it, it really doesn't matter where people are. Uh, they can be the rich, they can be the poor, anywhere in between. People are addicted to the smartphones and they're addicted to the social media. And what does that mean? That's that's what people are trying to figure out. The, the stats aren't great <clears throat> as far as what that means for people and what that does to their overall health. There's a study here. This is from studyfinds.org, and it's talking about teenagers. And it says the happiest teens use smartphones, digital media, less than an hour a day. Might be worth uh, just thinking about, say, if you have a teen or you are a teen or uh, anybody. If you're on social media and if you're, you know, or digital media of any kind, really, uh, they say less than an hour a day. And those are the happiest people. Uh, worried about your child's smartphone use getting out of hand, they they write, you should be. 
The new study finds that teens who are hooked on their phones and other digital devices are markedly unhappier than their less plugged-in peers. And now it's not saying, you know, never ever use it, but it's saying that uh, the studies show, the numbers show, the more people are on it, the longer duration of time they're on it, the more unhappy they are. That's what the numbers show. Researchers from San Diego State University and the University of Georgia examined data on more than a million 8th, 10th, and 12th grade American students participating in the long-term Monitoring the Future study. So that's a lot of people that they took a look at, and uh, they've been doing it for a while to try to get pretty accurate readings. Participants were polled on their mobile device and computer use and their amount of face-to-face social interaction with others, and they were also surveyed on their level of overall happiness. The authors found that teens who spent more time spending uh, with friends in person and less time texting or video chatting were happier than those who spent more time in front of a screen. There was a notable increase in overall life satisfaction for students who participated in more extracurricular activities or sports, as well as those who read actual print publications more frequently. The research team believes that habitual use of smartphones or computers to socialize was a key factor in how unhappy a participant felt. So you get the idea here. It's not just the screen time that's obviously part of it, but it's what the screen time is is replacing. It's replacing reading a book, <laughs> actual print. It's replacing contact with other people face-to-face. It's uh, replacing extracurricular activities such as sports. So it's replacing these things. And... You know, just that alone uh, is, I think, leading to more unhappiness. They say the key to digital media use and happiness is limited use. That's what the study says. That's according to Jean M. Twenge, the study's lead author, a professor of psychology at uh, SDSU. They say aim to spend no more than two hours a day on digital media and try to increase the amount of time you spend seeing friends face-to-face and exercising. Two activities reliably linked to greater happiness. Uh, And (laughs) I've seen quite a few young people, especially just recently in my neighborhood. uh, I've seen a few of them, I think I mentioned this, but walking together in a group, but they were all on their phones, individually, you know, just staring down at the screen. I'm amazed they didn't walk into a car or a mailbox or something. But uh, so I guess they were together, but they were in their own little worlds. So I'm not exactly sure what the arrangement was there, but I do see that pretty often. And the study says, and while Twenge suggests allowing a maximum of two hours for screen time, she says the study showed, that again, that the happiest teens were those who spent a tad less than an hour a day on digital media. What if you didn't spend any time on digital media? How happy, how happy would people be? Uh, There is benefit to it, of course, and sometimes you have to be on some of those platforms on some level. But again, this is looking at um, some of the younger people and their development. It says the statistic includes teens who report not using digital devices at all, so there are some of those out there, which means some use use of technology makes children happier, uh, they think. But after that first hour, unhappiness rose steadily among participants as their total screen time increased. So I don't think anyone's advocating, say, you know, locking the kids away so that they never, you know, experience society or something like that. But, uh, you know, if people are on the uh, social media devices too much or on those platforms, uh, they're, they're having uh, certainly less happiness. Uh, the report notes that while some studies have proven social media use can lead to greater happiness for a child, 
The studies show that being unhappy did not lead to more social media use. So they're looking at it from a few different angles. Not surprisingly, the author points out that uh, studies have shown self-esteem and life satisfaction levels dropped sharply after 2012. Uh, this was talked about recently on several uh, shows here on Tremper Radio. Just uh, people's happiness, self-esteem, life satisfaction has really taken a dip. And, you know, also related to that, it's teen suicides uh, on the rise. And uh, they think it might coincide with uh, social media use. Now, whether the social media itself is a direct cause of it or if it's because using social media means that they don't have as much face-to-face time and extracurricular activities, you know, probably all plays a part, but uh, the numbers are pretty interesting. Uh, they say the, it's, uh, the levels of people that uh, had their self-esteem and life satisfaction dropped since 2012 sharply. That's the same year that the number of Americans who owned a smartphone jumped over 50%. So that 2012 year is a key date because uh, people were not quite as happy and satisfied and fulfilled in life. And that's when the uh, smartphone usage jumped or people had smartphones more than 50%. To that point, her study only adds to the wealth of work that's determined parents must monitor how much of their time their teens are spending online. So that's what uh, the responsibility of the parents are. And, and again, it's, this is just a teen study. It would be interesting to see what the study is in relation to just adults as well. I can, you know, There's been a lot of studies where the smartphones and the other technology is really cut into family time or meal time where people, have, I, we talked about it the other week, there was a study where uh, people could not go through a meal without looking at their phone a certain amount of times. So anyway, it's it's interesting, and it is something to consider because we're entering sort of this new, new uh, age, I guess, where uh, the results of a lifetime or an early lifetime spent on smartphones, the fruits of it are coming, coming to bloom. And exactly what are they? They don't look like they're great. So it's something to consider as uh, you deal with your own uh, situations there with phones and technology and so forth. Uh, Really, really interesting uh, trumpet brief yesterday. Mr. Uh, Stephen Flurry sent this out. And it uh, hopefully you uh, subscribe to that. If you don't, you can subscribe to it for free. It's at thetrumpet.com, the trumpet brief. And he said, since January, students from Herbert W. Armstrong College have been participating in the latest phase of Dr. Elat Mazar's archaeological excavation on the Ophel in Jerusalem. So if you're familiar with uh, this radio station and Herbert W. Armstrong College, you probably know all about this. But it's an exciting uh, excavation going on there in the Ophel in Jerusalem. The current phase of the dig ends this week, he writes, and he said he'll be traveling to Jerusalem with his family to help the volunteers wrap things up. Uh, Earlier today, he wrote, Dr. Mazar announced the discovery of some rare bronze coins the coins uncovered by our students, the students from Herbert W. Armstrong College, over the past couple of months are a testament to the Jews' struggle against the Romans in the years preceding the fall of Jerusalem. Really an awesome video about it. Uh, Dr. Mazar's press release received a lot of attention. So there's a video that you can see, and uh, if you haven't seen that, we do have the audio of that for you here. Uh, it's about a four-minute clip, and uh, it's Dr. Mazar talking about uh, that find over there in uh, Jerusalem, and uh, we'll play that for you now.
The cave was used in three major phases. The earliest one is the Hashmonain one, which we found in quite a thick layer at the bottom of the cave. And this we can see just at the back on the floor of the cave. The pottery and the coins from this layer are very clear Hashmonain. This is just through the days of King Herod, but not later. The second phase is most interesting one just as well, and it includes remains from the second temple period up to 70 CE, to the dis very destruction of Jerusalem and conquered by the Romans. What we found here, first, it is amazing that such a large cave was sealed since 2,000 years ago and never used again. We know it for certain. The assemblage for the pottery is very significant, only to the second temple period and no later than 70 CE. And then we have dozens and dozens of coins. What is so fantastic about these coins that it does indicate that we're talking about an existing an acknowledgement and use of this cave by the rebels of, of Jerusalem, the Jewish rebels, uh, up to the very last minute of the last year of the, of the four years of the rebellions, meaning the rebellions four years are 66 to 70 CE, meaning to the last minute of 70. How we know that? The coins bear the symbols, Jewish symbols, the, the four pieces of, of uh, biblical times that we know that were used in the temple, and also a goblet that was used in the, in the cult in the, in the temple. Symbols, Jewish symbols that are very, um, very well known. But in addition to these symbols, there is a clear Hebrew inscription saying to the freedom of Zion, and in the last year, it came to be to the redemption of Zion. And it says, year two or year three and the last year is year four so on one side to the redemption of zion or the other side year four and such coins very clear because they were not used for a long time and maybe not so used at all last year they were mint and we have dozens of these coins in this cave so it's not an unusual a phenomena that we can come to such a closed cave, untouched, 2,000 years, including the very last remains of life of the people who were uh, sieged in Jerusalem, suffered in Jerusalem, um, to the very last minute of the Second Temple period. So this cave that we concluded this season to excavate is of a specific and most interesting story in the history of Jerusalem. So that's some of the audio from uh, that uh, really great video, and you can see the video, and which you know obviously you'd really like to do, of course, because it uh, gives you all the, the the video and the pictures of that cave, uh, which is amazing. People lived in there; really uh, awesome to work in there and to see that history and to to find those coins. And you can see that at thetrumpet.com, and it's also embedded in the uh, Trumpet Brief 
from yesterday. So again, if you don't receive those trumpet briefs, they're free and recommend you sign up for those at thetrumpet.com. So pretty exciting uh, find over there, and I'm sure there'll be uh, more information about that as uh, as uh, time goes along. But uh, you can see that video at thetrumpet.com. Make sure you do stop and look at that. Pretty exciting. Uh, one last note to look at today. This is sent in from uh, one of our listeners. We appreciate sending this in. Really, uh, really a great story about uh, space, the universe, what's going on up there. This is from uh, iCrayer.org. Astronomers discover galaxies uh, spin like clockwork. So it's always interesting when you look up into the uh, universe and you see things happening in a very specific way. And you would think that scientists would say, uh, who made that? And how come it works so well? But oftentimes they don't get back to that conclusion. Uh, And as the Bible says, I mean, the, the heavens do declare God's glory. I mean, it is his handiwork. And the more they look at it and the more they see that it functions according to very specific laws, <clears throat> the more it does reveal this uh, master creator. Uh, it says, Astronomers have discovered that all galaxies rotate once every billion years, no matter how big they are. Not sure exactly how they got all those numbers, but uh, it is interesting to look at. They say the Earth spinning around on its axis once gives us a length of a day. And a complete orbit of the Earth around the sun gives us a year. So I think we're all familiar with that and the way that it works. <clears throat> it says, uh, it's not Swiss watch precision, said Professor Gerhard uh, Muir of, uh, from the UWA Node of International Center for Radio Astronomy Research. Uh, although I don't know that I would agree with that. I think it is very precise. But he says, but regardless of whether a galaxy is very big or very small, If you could sit on the extreme edge of its disk, as it spins, it would take you about a billion years to go all the way around. Professor Muir uh, said that by using simple math, you can show all galaxies of the same size have the same average interior density. He said discovering such regularity in galaxies really helps us to better understand the mechanics that make them tick. You won't find a dense galaxy rotating quickly, while others, while another with the same size but lower density is rotating more slowly, he said. Uh, the professor and his team also found evidence of older stars existing out to the edge of galaxies. So they're looking up into space, they're learning more about it, and they're learning that it uh, is very precise in its movements and the way that it rotates uh, like a clock, which is uh, cool. I mean, when you look up there... In uh, the universe, and when we think about the Earth, obviously, it's, a lot of it's based on rotation. You're rotating in a certain way. Um, he said, uh, but instead of finding just gas and newly formed stars at the edges of their disks, we also found a significant population of older stars along with the thin smattering of young stars and interstellar gas. He said this is an important result because knowing where a galaxy ends means we astronomers can limit our observations and not waste time, effort, and computer processing power on studying data from beyond that point. So that's it is a good point to consider uh, looking up at, at, at all this data and trying to understand where one galaxy ends and another begins would be very important for uh, learning about its rotations, for example. They say, so because of this work, we now know that galaxies rotate once every billion years with a sharp edge that's populated with a mixture of interstellar gas with both old and young stars. So they are rotating. Everything is in movement. 
Uh, the professor said that the next generation of radio telescopes, like the soon-to-be-built Square Kilometer Array, or the SKA, will generate enormous amounts of data, and knowing where the edge of a galaxy lies will reduce the processing power needed to search through the data. When the SKA comes online in the next decade, he said, we'll need as much help <clears throat> as we can get to characterize the billions of galaxies these telescopes will soon make available to us. So the more they look up there, the more they see. It's very exciting to see. Of course, the Hubble Space Telescope is one that uh, uh, a lot has been written about. We've all seen those uh, very exciting images from that. And there is a great uh, book at thetrumpet.com about that as well, where it goes through and it gives you a lot of those very awesome images from up there in the universe that come from the Hubble Space uh, Telescope. And also talk about how special the Earth is, how unique it is for it to function uh, as it does. And so there's a lot of great uh, information in uh, the book on our our uh, awesome uh, universe. You can find that at the uh, trumpet.com. And just uh, tremendous uh, pictures in there are awesome universe potential. You can find that by going to the library section. And uh, that's written by uh, Joel Hilliker, and it says this in the introduction. The uh, Hubble Space Telescope is one of the greatest developments of modern science. And as that other article pointed out, they're, they're developing more, uh, or more um, uh, uh, telescopes and so forth to be able to look out and to see even further. And the more they see, the more awesome it really is. He said, human beings made in the image and likeness of God are probing deeply into the universe as never before, observing the Creator's handiwork. Those Hubble pictures should give this whole world a great deal more hope, not only because those countless awesome galaxies point us to their Creator and His limitless power, it is also because, when understood according to the revelation in the Bible, they expand our understanding of the incredible human potential God has given us. So when they look out there, as this uh, writer points out, they see very precise universe and precise galaxies rotating and spinning according to law, according to some law that was put in place. And, of course, what does that lead back to? Well, ultimately, it leads back to a, a creator, uh, a being that made that in the first place. And so uh, it's, it's exciting to see what they are discovering out there uh, in the universe. But definitely check out this book, Our Awesome Universe Potential. It's free at thetrumpet.com. Incredible pictures in there of the uh, Hubble telescope and uh, what uh, it has uh, observed out in the universe. Uh, five chapters in the book, the perfect seat for viewing the cosmos, talking about the Earth and how amazing it is, the laws that are in place for the, to be life on Earth. Uh, the second chapter is on the heavens declare God's glory. Chapter 3, did it all start with the Big Bang? That's, uh, of course, the scientific theory that is out there, but where did it all start and how did it start? Chapter 4 is why the universe. That's a question that doesn't get asked enough. They, they can observe the universe. They can see how it functions on some level. But then, you know, the, the obvious next question would be, well, why is it there in the first place? What's the point of all of that? And then uh, the final chapter is forever and infinity. And so you can get that book. It's free, and it's at thetrumpet.com, our awesome universe potential. Really great to go through and uh, read that and uh, just get some perspective on... Uh, how amazing the universe really is. Uh, make sure you listen for the Key of David program that's coming up here in a bit on KPCG. Also, the Trumpet Daily Radio Show today. Lots of good information there about uh, uh, what happened with Iran and Egypt back in the uh, uh, late 70s and some of the history there of Herbert W. Armstrong, Anwar Sadat, and uh, 
the way of peace temporarily restored, uh, momentarily restored. Go ahead and uh, that book's at thetrumpet.com too. You can get, but a great synopsis of that book, some great audio clips from back then as well. And that's coming up on the Trumpet Daily Radio Show uh, a little later today uh, as well. That's all the time we have for today here on Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for spending some uh, time with us. And uh, we'll definitely uh, be excited to talk to you again tomorrow. I'm Dwight Falk. Make sure you listen for the Key David program coming up. Also, Trump Daily Radio Show right on the way. Enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. You're listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.